I am Adam and Casey's little sidekick, Dave. Uh, shorter, hairier. Um, well, Adam's, Adam's kind of got a little bit of a scruff beard going there. A little bit. Uh, good to be with you guys this morning. I am uh, graced to get to fill in, oh man, Upper Deckers. Yes, there you are up there. Wonderful. Um, <clears throat> to get to preach for Brant this morning. He was on vacation this week, and it's always nice to not have to come back in after having some time off uh, and teach. So, um, so, but I got to go back to Granny White, and I just came here from Granny White, so I'm, I feel a little bit scattered. So I'm going to jump right in. Here we go. So uh, have you, Brant, you can answer this for me. Uh, have you ever <coughs> had this experience? Have you ever gone on a trip and on maybe as early as the day of arrival, I, this has happened to me, but certainly um, a few days into the trip, have you began to think about having to go back to wherever you came from? And the anticipation of that time ending kind of starts to creep into the present moment and actually you begin to get robbed of the joy or of the fully present experience of the now because you know this is about to end. Does everybody have that experience? Yeah. Have you had the opposite experience? Have you had the experience that uh, an upcoming trip, something that you're really excited about is kind of on, on the horizon, right? And that experience, that hope, that sense of, man, we're about to be there, right, can actually do the inverse, right? It can bleed into the days and weeks leading up to that trip, and you actually kind of borrow, in a sense, some pre-joy, right? Even the people waiting outside right now, right? I walked through all these people waiting. Like, they're, they're borrowing the pre-joy of what's happening tonight just by sitting outside of Riverside Revival for whatever concert's happening here, right? You borrow that joy, and you actually bring that reality uh, into your present day, right? Even into the difficulty of your day, because you know, hey, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. I believe that's an example of what Scripture says in a lot of places, but it certainly says it here, uh, is an inevitable reality for us, and it's this. What you believe to be true about your future what you to believe, believe to be true about your future, what it holds, or maybe another way to say it for our purposes today, who holds your future in their hands? Is it just kind of a toss-up, or is there, is there anything certain we can kind of bank on? What your future holds, who holds it, it undoubtedly informs and affects how you and I are living our lives in this present day. Scripture says that. One commentator said it like this, the present moment this present moment even, our present moment right now, us being together here in worship, is seldom ever wholly present. You ever struggle to actually be present in worship, right? Because you're thinking about what happened this morning, you're thinking about what's gonna happen this afternoon. The present moment is seldom ever wholly just the present moment. Every present moment always partakes of the immediate or distant past, right? or the immediate or distant future. So our past experiences or our future senses, what we believe to be true, undoubtedly shape our current activities and our perspective. So it's pretty vital that you actually wrestle with the question that we're gonna wrestle with today, and that's this. What do you believe? What do you believe 
about your ultimate future? It's an important question. I mean, Paul dedicated an entire chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 to this, talking about the resurrection from the dead. And he basically says this, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if the resurrection is not real, if the dead are not raised, then basically what we're doing here right now is a giant waste of time, okay? Every Sunday when you get up and you come here to worship, you're wasting your time if Jesus was not raised from the dead and does not raise the dead. Paul basically says this, eat, sleep, and drink for tomorrow you die, which is the way of the world, right? Just get it in now because this is it. So what you believe about your ultimate end, it's security, it's surety, and really how much you spend time focusing your attention on the truth of what the claims of Christ are about your ultimate end are important because the truth is, is that whatever you focus on, you feel and you bring that hope or that certainty or that confidence into your present experience. And you actually can, we'll see it today, I hope, you can taste the future in the now. I want you to taste the future in the now, which is really in many ways, it could be a sum up of what Revelation's entire purpose is. I want you to taste what I see as reality because I'm outside of time, right? This is true. This is what's true. I want you to see and taste the future in the now. I want you to look at your life through my eyes. That's what Revelation has been all about. Allowing God's, it's been called reframing reality, God's reality to reframe our reality because human beings at best, you and I at best, and no one likes hearing this, modern people love to believe we can figure everything out. We are at best airplanes flying through the clouds with limited instrumentation, right? You ever been up in the clouds and looking out and you're like, the plane's bumping. I hope somebody has a radar up there because you can't see anything. That's us. Revelation is pulling us up out of the clouds, saying, look at things from my perspective. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I am pulling back the curtain so you can see reality from my vantage point. Because this group of people, right, that, that was receiving this original revelation, all they saw were bumps, turbulence, and clouds, right? And yet, this vision, the vision we're going to read in Revelation 21, it so shaped their perspective of their current moment, that they actually stepped into suffering and incredible difficulty with joy and with hope. This vision framed up the borders of their pain. It said, yes, this stinks, this hurts, this is horrible, but this is not everything. There's a border on this. There's a riverbank on this, right? Because if our future is only shaped by our present realities, then our future is pretty bleak, isn't it? Would you give me that? Yes. So it's fitting that the closing scenes of the revelation, I mean, the final words, last words are lasting words, right? The final words given to John and the church in the closing scenes that is not only just summing up this revelation, it is summing up all of scripture of God's plan to accomplish redemption. It is spectacular in its unmatched promises of glory and goodness. And he's saying, lean into these things and let them shape your present. So here we go, Revelation 21, one to seven. God's word, I'm reading, right? I'm reading? Yes, I'm reading the Bible. Here we go. Everybody's like, I thought the sermon was almost over. Uh, 
Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. This is Revelation 21, 1 to 7. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. To those who are victorious or those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, speak uh, to us. Holy Spirit, uh, would you guide my heart and my mind? We desperately um, need to hear from you this morning, not from me. So would you peel back the curtain uh, and stir our hearts to the truth? Uh, They desperately need a fresh drink of it in your name. Amen. All right, so three things, uh, and I'm going to have to move kind of quick. Oh, Three things. Anybody who knows me, that's not my specialty. It's quick, right? The old is out. This is what this passage tells us. The old is eventually out. The new is to come. And then we're going to, I really want to talk about this, the new in the now. Like how do we begin to practice the new that is to come in the now? So first thing, it says really clearly, the old is out. These verses communicate something, right? If you saw it in there, there's a lot of no longers or no mores. These verses communicate that when Christ returns, and he will return, and when he does, he promises this, that I will authoritatively, because remember, these words are coming from a throne, right? So I'm king of kings, lord of lords, I'm the king of the universe. Authoritatively usher in an unending reality, An eternal reality where the things that we are currently experiencing in this life will be completely and utterly finished. They will be no more, right? That's the old order of things. That's what it says there. And the old order of things in verse 4 had passed away. It'll pass away. That means it won't be restrained. It won't be reduced. It will be utterly eliminated forevermore. And what's the first thing he says there? I saw new heavens and new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was what? No longer any sea. So for those of you like me who are beach lovers, ocean lovers, water lovers, fishermen, right? Expert fishermen here? I'm kidding. I love to fish. But before you freak out, um, remember (laughs) that this book, Revelation, is primarily, it's apocalyptic literature, which means it's primarily imagery and metaphors being stacked upon one another to actually not be treated as a code book or be taken like word for word literal in that sense, but to actually evoke imagery, right? Speak through pictures. And so for somebody in the first century, especially June, the first century, the sea in the mind of a first century person was not a place like we think about when we think about 30A or wherever we go to the beach, right? The sea for a first century person would have literally meant this, chaos, right? We think umbrellas and drinks and drinks with umbrellas or, yeah, yeah, drinks with umbrellas, right? 
they think shipwrecks and drowning and deadliest catch, right? That's, that's how they would think about the sea. Leviathans, the monster under the sea. The sea was a dangerous place. It was a place of chaos. It was a place where you're vulnerable and exposed. If you've ever been caught in a rip current, you know what I'm talking about. Where all of a sudden I'm a strong swimmer and then all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, I, I'm completely helpless here against the power of the sea. Jesus is saying when he says there will be no more sea, a day will come where the chaos of this world, it will end. All of the chaos of this world will end. Just think about that for a second. I mean, is that not almost impossible to fathom? That all of the chaos that we are experiencing in this world will end. Because our world locally and globally is chaos, right? I mean, it, it takes courage. I know it sounds crazy, but it does. It takes courage to head out your front door some days. From conflicts like we see playing themselves out in Gaza to a jog turned into death for a Belmont student just a few days ago that has destroyed a community over there in Edge Hill. Grief, loss, chaos, this is life. And Jesus is saying, when he's saying the old is out, this will end. There will be no more sea. There will be, what is else? No more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. So much of our lives is crying and mourning and pain. And even if, because man, we work at this, we can get it together on the outside and actually act like it's not. Aren't you crying on the inside all the time? If you're honest with yourself, aren't you literally maybe once a day, maybe multiple times a day, sometimes every minute of the day, experiencing pain, right? In some form or another. I mean, that was you know, the famous quote in Princess Bride, Wesley to Buttercup, right? Life is what? Nobody knows that movie anymore. Life is pain, your highness. Anybody else is just selling you something. But guess who said it before? Wesley to Buttercup. Jesus to us. He promises in John 16, in this world, in this life, you will have trouble. We love claiming the promises of God, but I know very few people who want to claim that one. But it is a promise. He has promised us in this world, you will have trouble, but you have resources. Take heart, right? I have overcome the world. And Jesus is promising, yes, I promise in this world you're going to have pain. You will experience chaos. This world is falling apart because of sin. But there is a day that is coming where death and all of his friends, they will come to an end. There will be no more, yes, physical death. There will be a resurrection from the dead. But there will be no more of these daily deaths that we deal with all the time. Things as subtle as this, I challenge you to think about it, how many deaths you experience every day. The death of dreams. The death of ideas that you know will never come to fruition. The death of relationships, family, friendships, otherwise that are breaking apart. Have you ever, I'm having this experience, this feels really vulnerable to say this, I want a relationship with my oldest son who loves me and I love him. And I just can't get there with him. He's not doing anything bad or wrong. It's just like, I want to know you in a way, and I can't. There's something there, and I'm, I'm dying to close the distance. 
No more deaths, no more relationships never making it there or breaking apart, no more running out of time, no more physical, relational, psychological, social, global, familial pain. Why? Because of what Revelation 22 says, there will be no more curse. Sin will meet its final end. He has defeated it, and we will taste that one day. I will no longer struggle with my sin because I struggle with my sin. I struggle with the sins that I do, and I struggle with what sin has done to me and the sin that other people have done to me. And he's saying, on this day, at the second coming of Christ, that old day will pass away. It will be out because a new order is here. So the second thing, the new that is to come. 1003, here we go. The new that is to come. Now, this section of Revelation does not speak to all the specific aspects of what glory with Jesus is going to be like. I mean, we could literally do an entire sermon series on all the various aspects of what life in Christ and life with Christ is going to be like, right? But I'd encourage us, have you guys seen any videos of the sphere in Las Vegas? Yeah? Has anybody gone to the sphere yet? Nobody at Granny White had gone yet. All right, there's an assignment for y'all, right? <laughs> Came from the guest preacher, you can go to the sphere. Um, no. You know, I was, I was looking at a picture of that. I was watching some video from that, and I was thinking about Revelation as a whole, but even this, and realizing, wouldn't it be silly to be in there and go, oh, I'm going to just try to focus on that one little part of the ceiling of the sphere, and like, oh, isn't that image really beautiful? When the whole purpose of the thing is for you to be submerged and engulfed in a giant visual. That's what revelation is, and that's what even this is when we talk about a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. These are like massive concepts and idea, ideas for the Jewish people that would have literally surrounded them like the sphere in Vegas, and they would have literally buckled under the weight of what these things are. So let's just kind of look at the whole dome for a second. There, there are a few things that are big, big things here. First one is this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's pretty big, right? A new heaven and a new earth. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, if you're not cool, you're about to get familiar with it for at least a minute. The beginning of Genesis 1 starts off with what? In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth, right? So here at the end, he sees a new heaven and a new earth, right? The first heaven and the first earth were created by God's power, by God's wisdom, Scripture says, by his word. He spoke it into existence by his authority, and he created it for us, right? We are the crowning act of his creation. We are image bearers, right? We bear the image of God, and we were created to work in. So heaven is not going to be umbrellas and drinks. We're actually going to work in heaven, right? new, redeemed, glorious work, and we're going to wonder in relationship with one another and with him. And so for God to just say this very simply, remember, big here, a new heaven and a new earth, it's basically God saying this, I have not since the beginning of creation given up on my plan. This is not, Revelation 21 is not the alternate plan. This is the accomplishment of the plan. I have not given up on my plan. You were not made for some ethereal existence in the clouds. You were made for earth. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring a new heavens and a new earth for you to be in. If you haven't thought about that, that's a significant thing. A lot of people don't believe that about 
the afterlife. We're kind of going somewhere. No, no, no. It's coming here, and it's a new here. So even though humanity fell into sin, and even though creation was completely fractured by sin, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is summed up here, is saying this, I have set out to redeem it all, and I've done everything necessary to make sure that sin will be dealt with and ultimately defeated, and this new day is to come. Behold, I am making all things new, and I'm beginning with the new heavens and the new earth. Boom, sphere, right? Secondly, a new Jerusalem, which wouldn't have, doesn't mean a whole lot probably to us individually, but it would have meant a whole lot to them. And then I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Whoa. That's kind of a weird way to talk about it, isn't it? You think about this. A city that's in a dress, a wedding dress, is what John is basically saying. I see here, a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. <clears throat> now, city, Jerusalem, but cities in general, cities are not just places, right? They are places, but they're places that are inhabited by people, right? So when it says, I see a new Jerusalem, it's not just talking about a physical building or a physical place, right? It's talking about a place and a people. The city of Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem, is where all of God's people will be gathered, yes, in a physical place, the new heavens and the new earth, in a urban environment. So sorry for all you guys who want to move out to the country. It's going to be a city, and I love the rural, rural areas, so I'm, I'm still having to deal with that personally in my own heart, right? But the city is a place full of people, and what the picture here is, is a wedding, right? It's like when weddings, you have weddings, and some weddings can be not so fun uh, at times when family gets together. But this is going to be a good experience of that where the entire family of God is going to be brought together. And this whole experience is going to be like a wedding and a bride on her wedding day. Now, this wedding imagery, it's a lot of places in Scripture. It's a, dun a ton of it here in the last two chapters of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb where Jesus is the groom and we are the bride of Christ. But I want you to just think about this. The picture here, and for a first century Jewish person, this would have been kind of shocking. The groom goes away, yes, after we're betrothed, and he prepares a place, and then he comes and gets the bride and brings the bride to live in this place that he prepared at his father's house, right? But the picture here is different. The picture here is the groom is actually bringing everything down to us, right? I'm coming down from heaven for you to be with you. And it's literally going to be like the experience of watching the bride come down the aisle, which everyone maybe has had that experience in a wedding where you stand up and you kind of all turn and look at the bride. But as the pastor, I've learned something pretty important. If you really want to see how pretty the bride is, look at the groom's face. Don't look at her. Look at him. Because when you look at him, what you see is as she's never been more beautiful than in his eyes at that moment. So this picture of a new city, a new Jerusalem, the people of God coming together in this big wedding feast is basically saying this, just like if you've had the privilege of being married to somebody that you deeply love, in that moment of like, man, all of my desire is being fulfilled. That is what this is speaking to. It is the fulfillment of all of our desire to be with one another, to be in a place, and to be a place in a place that is unbroken by sin. So a new heavens, new earth, and then a new Jerusalem with one another, and then lastly, a new union. <clears throat> and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God, which is a promise going all the way back into Exodus, Exodus, Exodus 6. So we have this new heavens, new earth, this new Jerusalem, these, this new wedding feast. And then lastly, this new union where he will dwell, it says there, with them. His dwelling place is now among the people. I know this sounds subtle, but it's significant. The end game isn't Jesus taking us away to be with him. He's coming down to be with us. Do you hear it? Jesus comes down. He doesn't just come back. He comes down. Which basically means this. You and I married up. Okay? That's what that means. We marry up into a family to a husband with real wealth and real means. But don't be mistaken, he has always come down to make that happen. He has always humbled himself. He has always lowered himself. And yes, you are the bride that he deeply desires. But when we see him, it will be like us looking at the bride. Oh my goodness. You are, you are the essence and the fulfillment of everything I've longed for. Now for a first century Jew, this would have been bonkers, right? Getting close to God was not allowed <laughs> at all, right? Let alone married to God. Like, they'd have been like, wait, what? Like, king, yes. Authority, yes. Husband, no, right? God's presence only inhabited the Holy of Holies, this perfect little cube inside of the temple. In Revelation 21, later it says there is no more temple. And people would have been like, wait, no temple? Wait, what? We're going to be married to God? Like, this is the picture, the, the kind of intimacy that we're going to have with God. It's not only just for the high priest one day on the Day of Atonement to go on and make sacrifices for sin, but we have this kind of access, the kind of access where he will be so close that he can personally wipe a tear away from your eye. You hear it? That's like your child crawling up into your lap, mothers and fathers, and you're face to face, right? They don't want explanations. They want comfort. And he's going to be that close to wipe away a tear from your eye. You will see God in this new to come face to face. And unlike Moses, who was afraid he would die, you will not die, but you will be fully alive in that moment. Whole, complete body and spirit. That is the new to come. And that's incredible. Like, those are incredible promises. But what about now? If you're like me, I go, okay, yeah, 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 okay. That's what's to come, that's what's to come. Like, put on the infomercial of eternity and just keep pressing play, keep pressing play. But man, now is hard, right? But let me tell you, and this is historical fact, the people who received this revelation, these people were the next day probably going to have, because of, of the widespread persecution that was happening to the church under Domnition, they could have literally had their family killed and thrown to the lions. That was not like a metaphor. That was real, okay? And yet, this vision, it wasn't just this kind of like pie in the sky, I'm hoping and I'm waiting. It had practical implications because they went towards that end and towards that suffering and towards that death and faced it with joy, with hope, with confidence, with peace. And they brought that to other people. 
mean, they, they literally sum up what Lewis, C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought the most about the next. Who did the most in this world were the ones who thought the most about the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. I spend no time meditating on this. And therefore, I become so ineffective in this world. Lewis says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you'll get neither. So how do we aim at heaven? Right? How do we busy ourselves preparing for this day that is to come and not just sitting idle on our hands because that is not what the Lord's called us to. So what is the new and the now? Two things. And then I will drive quickly to Green Hills. Sorry. That's on my mind more than it's on yours, I'm sure. How do we begin to practice and rehearse for this day to come? Well, I think there are two things that, <clears throat> at least for me, the Lord used this text to, to show me, for me. The first one is this. He says in verse 5, He who was seated on the throne, he said this, I am making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So the two things are this. We're going to start with the last one. Write it down. And then we're going to talk about giving it away. And, and this, I am making everything new. So write it down. Why would, he, why would he tell John to write this down? Why do you write things down? So you don't forget it. Yeah. Do you have a, anybody have a dream journal? You guys keep a... You, you used to? Yeah. Why do you have a dream journal? Like, I, I can remember waking up and I'm be like, Emily, man, I had some crazy dreams last night. She's like, really? What were they about? And I'm like, uh, this is like a horse. And like you, ever, like, you can still see it in your mind, but you can't even like make it into your mouth to actually explain it. Yes. Please, please nod if you've had that experience. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You're going to forget it. You're not going to be able to translate. He's saying, write this down, right? Because my word, you've got to hang on to my word because my word on this matter is what matters. Because Israel, your great tendency, John, your tendency as a human being is to forget the Lord, to forget what's true. And when you forget the Lord and you forget what's true, you actually do something. And this is what we've been doing since the fall of man is you try to be your own God. You try to be your own savior. You try to deliver on this day in your own strength. We end up looking more like Babylon than we do the new Jerusalem is what happens, right? We build our own cities in our own strength. Cities, if you study cities in the Bible, cities in the Bible usually are not referred to well at all. Cities are the places that man constructs to attempt to live without God. Cain was the first city builder, and God said, this is what your life's going to look like. And Cain goes, no, it's not. I'm going to go build a city, Right? So what is he saying when he's saying, write all this down? He's saying this, the world you want, the new earth that you want, the city you want, the relationships you want, the life you want, everything that you were made for is a thing that I have to do. The city you want is not a city you can construct. It's one that only I can build and I can deliver. It's one where I'm at the center. I'm on the throne. I'm an authority. Write it down. 
literally write it. Scripture says the Holy Spirit like writes it on the tablet of our hearts. Deuteronomy said, put it on the door frames of your home. Don't forget this. We cannot do this without him. He is the one who accomplishes it all. Let God's word shape your reality. That's what people like Abraham and Moses and David and Hebrews 11, go read it. They made their home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country is what it says. What does that mean? I'm going to live like that reality is true here in the foreign land, here in exile. I'm going to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city like Jeremiah says. Why? Because that's my home. I already have a citizenship in a different place. I don't belong here, but I'm going to live here like here is coming here. Write it down. What words, whose words are you scrolling heaven's Instagram feed? Because if you're not, you are letting another word define your reality. And he's saying, write it down. And then secondly, ooh, give it away. Give it away. Here's what give it away is. Verse 6, he says, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. In verse 5, he says, Behold, I am making everything new. So this is slight, but it's important. Um, when Jesus says, Behold, I am making everything new, he does not say, Behold, I will make everything new. He says, I'm already doing it. I've already started doing it. I've already begun doing it. So I don't have the time to build out this thought completely but, and go to all the places in Scripture, but here's what basically has happened for us if you're in Christ. Scripture makes clear that part of this new heavens and the new earth has already begun spiritually for you and I if you're in Jesus. Yes, and some of us are awaiting this more fervently than others. Uh, we want new glorious bodies. This one's, you know, I call it playing for the tie at this point, right? It's just all erosion, you know? It's just not working out. Pain. I, I wake up and I'm in pain, right? It's like, oh, what did I do? Did I, like, put a glass too high on the shelf? Yeah. I await a new glorious body that is free from death and decay and corruption and sin. My flesh. But Scripture says that you're already a new creation in Christ and spirit. The old is gone, the new has come, is what 2 Corinthians 5 says. So you have the Holy Spirit. You're not awaiting that. You've got a spirit, right? Fiance was, you know, right. He liked it and he put a ring on it, right? And the spirit is the deposit and the guarantee of the day that is to come. But the spirit is more than that. It's a teacher. It's a truth sayer. It's a guide. It's an applier of of everything that Jesus has taught us, it leads us. It's a lamp to our feet, but it's also this in Scripture. It's a water source. That's what the Spirit is called. And remember, to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. What does that mean? The spring of the water of life. If the Holy Spirit is a water source, let me tell you what that means. It means this. What Jesus says in John 7 Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He says to the woman at the well, indeed the water I will give you will be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What's this mean? 
it means you're a wellspring. It means you're, you're now spiritually a water source. You have the water. You have access to that stream that we will experience one day now. Your, your bottled water, your heaven's allocation, if you want to think of it that way, right? Of real spiritual water for real thirst because you know what the thirst of the human heart is all about. You know what Proverbs says when it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. You know why the heart is sick and what the heart longs for because this is what it's longing for and this is who it's longing for and you've got that water for the marathon of pain that everyone in this world is running and you have literally been filled up to spill it out for the world around you. We spend so much time trying literally to fill ourselves up, right? Fill me up, fill me up, fill me up. Literally, and we become these containers when really the Lord's saying, no, 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 I, I want it to spill out all over. You're a tr- you have a treasure in a jar of clay is what scripture says. I spend so much time believing church is about getting my jar all clean and not cracked anymore. And Jesus is saying, I don't want to fix the cracks in your jar. That's not what this is about. The brokenness in your life, the pain in your life, the places that you're crying, that's where my goodness spills out to the world in need. And let it go because I am a water spring. I will just keep filling you up so that you can be poured out. Would you dare to believe? I mean, I don't get to preach very often. It's probably showing. Everybody's like, whoa, this guy's kind of intense. I give up my congregation. And let me tell you this. When you preach, you spend time differently when you know you're going to give it away. You spend time differently with Jesus when you know you're going to give it away. And I thought, I missed that. And guess what I thought? That should be all of us. We should all be spending time with Jesus because we all are literally priests, a kingdom of priests to give away the water of life to a world in need. So you want to practice the here and the now, write it down. Let him write the truth of eternity on your heart. Let it shape your reality and then give it away. I dare you to give it away and watch and see what he does with it. Watch and see how he will quench your thirst for him by you sharing it with somebody else. You'll take a fresh taste of the grace of God when you give it away. All right, I gotta go. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, As my friends here continue uh, to worship, uh, would you water their hearts with hope? of this day that is to come, but it would it not be so far off in their minds that they would dare to believe that it's not, not already partially here. Um, turn on the spigot. In your name, amen.